Welcome to the Runner's World Show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World, and your host on this, our first ever podcast. Thank you so much for listening. In this, our debut episode, we have an exclusive interview with recently retired marathoner Ryan Hall and his wife, elite runner Sarah Hall. We talk about racing, about Ryan's post-competitive life, and about their adoption of four sisters from Ethiopia. We'll also bring you some on-the-road fueling advice from our nutrition editor, and we'll round up the week's biggest running news. But first, let's go for a run. I run away, and I run home. When I run, I never feel alone. Now hear me out, it's what I've learned. As runners, we tend to spend a lot of time thinking about the ground below us, focusing on putting one foot in front of the other. But Chris Kraft, the site director of RunnersWorld.com, thinks we're missing out when our minds are so earthbound. After all, a big part of running's appeal is the places that it takes us and the experiences we have when we're there. It's about these small moments of awe that we sometimes find even in the most pedestrian morning runs. That's when Chris runs, super early in the morning, when it's too dark to see much of anything. He spends much of his running time looking up at the sky. Lately, he's been looking for something pretty specific. My watch has started, so I'm officially on my run. Going out this morning, hoping to see the International Space Station as it goes over. It's supposed to go over at about 4.31 should be visible for a couple minutes so we'll see growing up in Michigan there was always a certain sky that you would see in the fall and in the winter time that was really really distinct and you know even in the daytime and so i've always i've always you know loved that and then we lived in florida for a while and there's another you know distinct sky that happens in florida and whenever I go back to those places, you know, that's one of the things that I always um, see and notice is just the sky. Oh, there it is. There it is. It's just, uh, wow, that's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. It's, uh, wow, it's kind of in the eastern sky, but it's just this little white speck. Little white speck just kind of slowly, steadily moving across the sky. Oh, that's so cool. Among all the other stars out there, it just looks like a star that's moving. It's moving on by. Oh, that's awesome. So I've been on the International Space Station, the ISS, uh, two times. Um, the first time uh, for six and a half months and the second time for about five months. My name is Sunita Williams. People usually call me Sunny. I work at the Johnson Space Center, and I'm a a Navy pilot and an astronaut. What first drew me to the sky um, was probably uh, watching birds. You know, my dad's an avid bird watcher, and uh, we used to go with him on walks, and he would identify birds. But, you know, I think I I liked more watching them fly through the branches and stuff like that versus identifying who they were, to my father's chagrin, I think. I've always been a morning runner. 
just love to get out there really, really early. Um, for a time, I was going out between 4 and 4.15 in the morning every day. Um, and there's not a lot to see then. It's dark. Um, but the one thing that is always visible is the sky. I love running in the morning. I think it's a great way to start your day. And if you get up early in the morning and you're out there before the sun comes up, you can you know, usually find Orion in the Big Dipper in our sky here. Um, and it's peaceful, and it gives you a, a little bit of time to just enjoy uh, you know, the night sky. Right now I see Jupiter in the western sky. It's really bright. And then about a million billion other stars. I'm one of those geeks who has signed up to get text alerts when the International Space Station is flying over my house. So it allows me to, you know, be prepared and watch it as it as it goes over. Looking at the Earth from ISS, I mean, you can't help but think about the people from home. And, um, and you find, of course, you initially want to find where you live. But then you start really looking at the planet as a whole and, and understanding of how small amount of the planet is really land. You feel both very, very small, and, and I also feel like I'm the only one seeing that at, at that time because there's nobody else out. And so it's just kind of a cool feeling of, of being both um, alone and also kind of connected to this, to this one thing that you're seeing. Uh, how much of its water and how much is going on in the water. You know, you could see coral reefs, uh, different blooms of algae and icebergs and different patterns as the seasons change. And it's it ma really makes you appreciate what a wonderful planet we have. And so I think it gives you a different uh, feeling of awe and perspective. I'll just never forget seeing this meteor as I was kind of coming up on this hill and just seeing this, you know, streak across the sky, that feeling of awe. I was on a run. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning. I was um, running up this hill um, close to my house near Atlanta, really clear morning. And then as soon as you see it, you know, it's like, you know, you want to hit replay and, and see it again, and but you know that it's gone. And it was just so cool. And again, just one of those moments that is just on, on any given run, there can always be a moment of just kind of bliss, you know, or just true awesomeness. The time I saw the Northern Lights on the International Space Station while we were on a spacewalk, and, it, you know, the only thing between me and the Northern Lights was my, essentially my visor at that time, was just unbelievable. It was un incredible. It sort of uh, blew me away as I was seeing, you know, this green glow um, poking on the earth, hitting the earth, and dancing around the earth. It's pretty spectacular. You know, I'm always aware of, of or I always try to be aware of, like, when the sun is rising, you know, the ex exact moment. I was on a run, I don't know, six months ago, and the moon was setting over a cemetery. It was beautifully lined up, the full moon setting right over the cemetery. Again, another just awesome moment that, you know, I'll, I'll probably never see again. I'm, I'm always, I always try to be aware of what's going on, and um, that often leads me to, to be looking out, you know, into, into the kind of the, the heavens. There it goes. It's kind of making its way. Well, it is making its way eastward. And uh, 
It's getting low in the sky now. Probably won't see it for many more seconds. I can still see it. Very cool. Tomorrow it's coming over twice. Twice in one morning. I get 4.40 and 6.16. So I'll be out running tomorrow and I'll look for it then. So hopefully uh, late next year, 2017, uh, the commercial crew program will be sending me and my compadres to space, and uh, maybe we'll get another shot at looking at the planet from, from space again. So looking forward to that. Okay, so I'm going to track it when, when you're back up there, and I'm going to know when you're flying over my house. <laughs> I'm going to be out running. I'm going to give you a wave like I always do, and I, I'll expect you to give me a wave back. Is okay, we'll, uh, we'll try to wiggle the wings from the space station uh, when we fly over uh, your house. So give us a heads up. <laughs> that was Chris Craft with astronaut and runner Sonny Williams. When Sonny makes her third trip to the International Space Station next year, She'll be doing more than just looking down at Earth. She will be running. That's because there's actually a treadmill on board the ISS, and the astronauts spend a fair amount of time running on it to stay fit and to counteract the effects of zero gravity. But Sonny, who's a diehard runner, went even further. On Patriot's Day in 2007, she taped her bib number onto the display of the treadmill and became the first person to run Boston in orbit. To hear Sonny talk more about what it's like to run in space... And to see some photos and a video, check out our bonus material at runnersworld.com slash audio. So I'm here now with Heather Mayer-Irvin, our food and nutrition editor. Hey, Heather. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you joined us relatively recently in January, but I can see by the samples out in front of us here, you have already been inundated with all manner of chews and bars and drinks and powders. And is that a bison bar I see over there? buffalo jerky, yes. Okay. Uh, And I think that's also a bottle of pickle juice. It is. It's very good. I really like it. (laughs) All right. I'll take your word for that. So- Some pretty familiar products, but also lots of new, innovative things. And it's kind of baffling for some runners who aren't sure whether this is stuff to take before they run, while they're running, after they run. How much should they take? How should runners think about these products and make sense of it all? It's a good question, and it is overwhelming uh, with more stuff coming to market every day. Um, And we can look at this in in two ways. Um, There are products that you should be eating or drinking during your run um, and those that you should be having after. Most of the products designed for your post-run are going to have protein, Um, but that can also be accomplished with a turkey sandwich, a banana with peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that's where the bison comes in. Yes. Yes. So what is it about protein that is good for a post-run recovery then? Your muscles are tired. They're torn, um, and protein is known to really help rebuild those muscles, and it's really good for recovery. Um, But when it comes to mid-run fueling, that's where things can get really confusing and where you're getting all of these different products. And the thing to remember here is that the key ingredient in all mid-run fuels are 
carbohydrates, um, specifically glucose. And that is going to refuel your glycogen stores. And those are what get sapped during your runs. And glycogen is the fuel that our bodies convert into energy. Correct. Um, so when thinking about mid-run fueling, um, there are a few rules of thumb that I like to go by. The first is you really don't need to eat or drink anything, maybe water, during runs that last less than 60 minutes, less than an hour. Um, and some people might be surprised at that, but it, it, your body doesn't need it. And when you start to eat or drink in runs less than an hour, um, you might start to gain weight, you might have GI distress, you might feel sluggish because your body just doesn't need it. So that assumes that you've had breakfast if you're a morning runner or lunch if you're an afternoon runner. Exactly. You've got something in your system. Um, and then once you hit that 60-minute mark is when you'll start fueling. Um, so the second rule of thumb is you know you're going to go out for 60 minutes or more. You'll start to take in 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates every 30 to 45 minutes. And each of these products is designed um, to have that nutritional breakdown. Uh, carbohydrates... Sometimes they'll have electrolytes, um, and it'll usually be about 100 calories, which you know, sort of brings me to my next rule of thumb is you need to start fueling early. Um, once you hit empty, that's it. Runners know about the wall at mile 20 of a marathon. Your body is designed to hold about 2,000 calories. You burn about 100 every mile. Come mile 20, there's nothing left. So if you don't start fueling early, you're in trouble. Um, that's where the 30 to 45 minutes comes in, and you basically top everything off and, and keep yourself in, in a good place. Okay, so to sum up, you want to take in some mid-run fuel, provided that you're going to be out there running for at least 60 minutes. Anything under 60 minutes, your body probably doesn't need that added fuel. Number two, you want to take in something every 30 to 45 minutes, and you want it to be about 100 calories and at least 60 grams of carbohydrate. Yep, 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates. Okay. And lastly, don't wait for your body to tell you that it's running out of fuel because if you do, it's probably too late. And then you're going to start bonking, hitting the wall, and that is not a good place to be. Exactly. But what about flavor? How important is it the way things taste? Presumably some people think uh, pickle juice tastes better <laughs> or worse than another kind of sports drink. Uh, you know, it comes down to preference. All of these are designed to do the same thing. So you want to choose something that you like because mile 15, you need to eat that. Um, so really, taste is very important, you know, so long as it has the ingredients that you need to keep going. Okay. So in some ways, the way something tastes is one of the most important variables because if you like something, that's the thing you're going to be willing to take in when you need it most. Exactly. So to get at this really important variable of taste, one of our editors, Brian Dalek, and our producer, Sylvia Ryerson, assembled a very discerning taste test panel. Right, Brian? Yeah, David. So we wanted two things with this panel. First, a group of people who had never tasted these products before, unlike runners who tried everything. And two, we didn't want them to really sugarcoat anything we were giving them. So straight up, do you like these products or not? So let's introduce our panel right now. I am Sarah, and I am nine years old. Um, I'm Abby, and I'm five. I'm five. My name's Douglas. I'm Adam. Five. No, you're four. Oh, right. So once we really zeroed in on their ages, we gave them their first product, and that would be an energy chew. Oh, I got them open. Yeah. Now my teeth taste like that. No, I think it reminds me of gummies. Can I try another one? Mm. What do you think, Doug? Mm, kind of good. Next on our taste test was an energy waffle. It's 
um, crunchy. I think they're sweeter and they're kind of bendy, like a soft cookie. And I think, yeah, they're sweeter. Do you think if your dad brought this home and it was just sitting around, you would have it as no. a snack? No. 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 I think every runner has been handed this at a race of like a half marathon or marathon distance. It's an energy gel. I do not like it. It's like liquid, but it's not liquid. Like a liquefied gummy bear. This is gummy. It's good. It tastes sour. Sour? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. <laughs> and it explodes. Exploded. We all it? messy. And finally, an energy food blend that comes in a pouch. Look hesitant mm-hmm. to try it. Okay. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it tastes like cinnamon and apples, but it's very mushy. Baby food. Okay. They called them gummies, but I think it was the chews that were the overall winner. Right. Hands down, chews were the winner, and they were also all over the studio. Okay. Thank you, Brian, and thank you to our taste test panel, who, by the way, were children of other Runner's World staffers. And in addition to giving them products in the middle of the afternoon that had lots of glucose and sucrose, uh, some of them actually had a bit of caffeine in them. So we heard from one of the moms that bedtime that night did not go well. Our apologies. It's always busy at Runner's World, but it's been an especially busy few months for the husband and wife running duo, Sarah and Ryan Hall. For starters, Ryan retired from competitive running in January at the age of 33. Since 2012, he'd been plagued by a series of injuries and health problems. But in his relatively short career, Ryan became the fastest American marathoner ever. He ran a 2.04.58 in Boston in 2011 and remains the only American ever to break one hour for the half marathon. The hallmark of Sarah's career has been versatility. She's run competitively in a range of distances, from the mile to the 5,000 meters to the marathon, even the steeplechase. She ran her first Olympic marathon trials in February. In hot conditions, she suffered the first DNF of her career. But she's still trying to get to Rio by way of the track this summer. After the trials, I spoke with Sarah and Ryan about their takeaways from the race, about whether Ryan would ever consider coming out of retirement, and about adjusting to what must be the biggest development in their lives, becoming parents of four adopted daughters, four sisters, in fact, from Ethiopia, ranging in age from 5 to 15. Ryan and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the Runner's World Show. Thanks, David. It's good to be with you guys. So, Sarah, when you ran in the Olympic trials in L.A., you were running on a loop course. Did you see Ryan along the way, and were the girls in town with you watching the race live? Yeah, I was able to see the girls on my warm-up, and then I'll never forget seeing them the first time around on the loop. Um, I actually started crying, which (laughs) I didn't expect, but um, they were just so excited, and I could see just how proud they were of me, and, um, and that was just a huge boost of motivation to me, and... I really wanted to be able to deliver on that day and make the team and get to celebrate with them. Um, But obviously, it's not how it happened. But um, I was able to see Ryan a few times, too, which helped to get feedback from him. And Were you surprised that it was so emotional when you saw your daughters on on the course? Well, I'm really just trying to 
let them into my mind and and even sharing the disappointments with them like saying that it's okay to be disappointed and when you have worked really hard for something but just not letting that make you um keep you from taking risks again just how to not fear failure and um I think for them they can relate because here they are in a new country they don't speak the language or they're learning it now and um they're having to be brave on a daily basis and so um I'm hoping that some of that translates over and um but yeah they've been really sweet like I think that was actually one of the redeeming things of the race for me was um having my five-year-old you know she saw my tears in this in a quiet moment and she's like don't worry mom we'll go out to the circle one which is the track and I'll help you run faster and like all my daughters individually were like we want to help you mom like don't worry like you're gonna get faster and so I really felt their love and and support through this which was I think it brought us together as a family in a new way which was really cool wow what a great example so, Ryan, I know your focus was on Sarah, but I also want to ask about your impressions of the men's race, especially as someone who has won a marathon trials race yourself. Um, Meb Kaflesky finished second and ran most of the way with Galen Rupp, but Galen kind of ran away with it and won, won handily, even though it was his debut marathon. And now he's even talking about running in the Olympic trials for the track and and possibly even doubling in the Olympics, running the marathon and the 10,000 meters. I'm I'm curious, what what do you think about Galen? He is so talented. Does he remind you of anyone? Do you think he is going to just take this distance by storm? What's your take? You know what? It would be really interesting to see what Galen could do if he went to the games and just focused on the marathon. I mean, I'm not saying he can't do both extremely well and have a chance of meddling even in both, but he's got the kind of potential where he could win the gold medal in the marathon. Now, whether you can double and do that, that would be be really something like I said it's not impossible but he definitely has the potential to win medals at the Olympics to run with the very best guys in the world I mean he's done it on the track in the 10k so there's no reason why he can't do it in the marathon when you have the wheels that Galen has that really kind of opens up the world to you and that's something that I as I look back on my own career I wish that I would have done a better job at staying close to track fitness, not not to try and run well on the track, but just I think I could have gotten uh, a little bit more out of myself um, in the marathon if I would have kept kind of that track-specific training as a bigger part of my program. Yeah, you started doing 100-mile weeks, you've said, in high school when you were 17 years old. Yeah, I've always uh, been pretty extreme in nature. Like when I get into something, I I really go after it. And that can be both good and it can work to my detriment sometimes. Um, But that's just that's who I am. You know, when I'm in, I'm all in and I'm very intense about it. But um, it's it's hard to mellow yourself out. And really, that's what I needed coaches for was to hold me back. Being in that environment, do you think that there's any small chance, even a 1% chance, that you might come back to the sport someday, assuming that your health comes back down the road? You're 33 now, and as you well know, lots of marathoners don't hit their prime until much later. Meb ran his PR when he was almost 40. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll never say never because I've learned that God especially likes to – 
do those things. Like I was like, the one school I'm never going to when I was being recruited out of high school was Stanford, and I ended up at Stanford. You know, so I don't know. I'm I seriously, seriously doubt it, but we always leave that door open. And um, there's definitely some things you know I wish I could have achieved. I wish it. I guess above everything else, I wish I would have hit my best state ever at one of the Olympics I was at. That would have been really fun. And I don't know where that would have landed me in terms of places and stuff like that. But it just would have been nice to like have my A game on the biggest day of my career. And I feel like I, I never got to experience that. How, how did the two of you end up adopting four sisters all at once? Yeah, we've always wanted to grow our family through adoption. Um, It was always on my radar with seven adopted cousins. And I think I told my mom when I was like five or six that I wanted to adopt kids. And so I guess Ryan said I told him on our first date. I don't remember that, but um, that I wanted to adopt kids one day. And um, it wasn't really on his grid, but we decided to start the process because it's such a long one. And we decided on Ethiopia for a few reasons, just... We'd been to Ethiopia. We loved the culture, but also seen the incredible need there. And um, obviously adoption isn't the solution to the orphan crisis in these impoverished countries that have been affected by HIV, AIDS, or disease, or different things. Um, and so, yeah, when we started the process, we thought, let's just adopt an infant. It's our first kid, and we want to experience the whole life cycle. But the more time we spent in these countries and learned the further down the, the process we got, we realized that the real need was with kids that were older or special needs. And that's really like we were adopting out of wanting to meet a need, I think. And so um, so we actually spent time in an orphanage with older kids when we were training in Ethiopia. And we were like, we would adopt any of these kids. They're amazing. And so, um, so yeah, that kind of opened our heart to the older children. And we heard about these four girls that had been waiting a while for a family and at first I was like, oh, that's crazy. Like, that would be the end of life as we know it. And um, But we prayed about it, and we felt called to go and meet them. Um, and they didn't know that's why we were there. But um, but we spent some time with them and the other kids and and prayed about it and decided to take the plunge and, and do it. Not only did you adopt four children, four sisters at that, you adopted two teenage daughters at the same time. <laughs> What is life like at your guys' home? What Walk us through a day from the moment the first one of you wakes up. How, how, does, how does this presumed chaos happen every day? <laughs> yeah, well, now that I'm not running, I'm, I'm taking on the dad role pretty heavy. So I get up at 5 a.m. every morning. I go down to the garage and do some weights, do that, and I come back upstairs, make the girls pancakes, get them up. And then Sarah usually gets up and we kind of both get them off into the car and I'll drive them to school. And then they're in school all day and we're getting stuff done. Um, And then, you know, once the kids are home, we're just kind of in homework and play mode um, throughout the evening. And one of us will make dinner. And the girls are really great about helping with the cleaning and stuff. Like we've never even asked them to do the do clean, but they just like love to. So that was like a match made in heaven for us because um, cleaning has not been on my or Sarah's uh, high priority list in the past. So they're they're good 
bit helping around the house and then um we try and also connect with you know board games stuff like that we'll occasionally throw on some music while we're making dinner and turns into impromptu dance parties and stuff so there's lots of lots of energy at our house now you know like the professional running lifestyle is typically your evenings are super mellow really relaxed watching movies um just kind of killing the time and there's no more of that for us we're we're uh very much alive at every part of the day and how's the communication going you said that the girls are still learning english and i I know the two of you speak amharic at least a little bit right what's the primary language in the hall household so now you know where we were like speaking kind of a hybrid of english and amharic together i my amharic is not great but sarah's is is really good um so we were doing that early on but then we had to find that we had to transition more to just speaking english with them because they weren't progressing as much and then now that they're in school and they're around english 24 7 essentially um we have to have we make them speak in amharic because we don't want them to forget amharic and our two youngest are already starting to forget their amharic and so we're like, no, we want you guys to keep it because we don't know what our plans are in the future. We we have a massive heart for Ethiopia, so we could see ourselves being involved in, in something um, at some point in Ethiopia. So we want them to keep their language so they can communicate uh, when and if we go back. I imagine that their bonds are really strong, the four sisters. How, how are they adapting to American culture and how do you see them helping each other and also helping you guys? Yeah, they've they've adapted so well and so fast. It, it's crazy. Sometimes I look at them and I'm like, I cannot believe that four months ago you were in Ethiopia and like they've blessed us so much already in the short time that we've become a family. But you know, like I, I think back to like last night we were out on the track. The sun was setting. Sarah was doing her easy run around the track. The girls were jumping in her run with her, and then at the end, Sarah's doing some strides and they're doing sprints on the track. And it was just like a beautiful evening, quiet. And I was like, man, we really this feels like family to me. Um, so it's it's been really a fun last four months for us. Well, that's a pretty great image uh, to end the conversation on. Sarah Hall, Ryan Hall, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with whatever is next with the Olympic track trials this summer and with perhaps a marathon some point during the year, Sarah. And Ryan, good luck with your coaching career and best to your daughters. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, David. To listen to the full interview with Ryan and Sarah Hall, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Each week, we leave you with a few things to talk about on your next group run. A few of the weird, surprising, newsworthy stories we've been following throughout the week. We call it The Kick. Here's online editor Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, Kit, so what stories have been really buzzing around the office this week? Well, Brian, in Dayville, Oregon, a small town in central Oregon, runners at an Easter 5K were surprised by a suspicious bandit that jumped in on the course. It was actually an elk named Buddy. Okay, so an elk named Buddy jumps into a 5K. Where where did it start to bandit this race? It started right after the starting line, and it pretty much stayed with runners the whole 3.1 miles. This is a a notorious elk 
in the town. It's been making appearances over the past few months, and they've actually nicknamed the Elk Buddy. What, that's fantastic. I don't even know if an elk is fast, but I just love the picture of a giant elk in a race. So did Buddy make it across the finish line? Well, word is he didn't cross the actual finish line, but he did hang out at the post-race party. Didn't partake in any of the complimentary water or snacks. And, uh, in fact, human handlers had to lead him away so that they could start the Easter egg hunt for the kids. Well, congrats to Buddy. He did a good job in that 5K. So, Kit, what other stories do we have this week? The next story we have um, is in Boston. Uh, at about mile 25 and a half of the Boston Marathon course, just before runners are entering into, um, turning onto Boylston and about to see the finish line, there's an overpass. Um, it's the Philip G. Bowker overpass. And officials from the Boston Marathon and the city just dedicated a Boston Strong sign above this overpass. So as runners are coming, they'll see this Boston Strong blue and yellow sign. And and why is that part of the course kind of significant for this? So if you remember in 2013, this is right near the spot where they closed off the course immediately after the bombings. It was where the masses um, of runners were gathering and couldn't continue along the course. So this sign is kind of commemorating that spot, and it's going to be a permanent sign up all year long. Okay, so if you're running this year, 2016 for Boston, you can look for this, or if you're just spectating, you can look for it anytime you're up in Boston. So I know we're already starting to talk about it and getting excited for the Boston Marathon, but you were at a race this week and it had a completely different feel to it. Yeah, I was at the Barkley Marathons. It's um, a completely different type of trail race. It's more really an endurance event. It's held in Tennessee at Frozen Head State Park. And if you don't know about Barkley, it's, it's kind of crazy. So it's 100 miles in quote marks because it's probably closer to 130 you have to do five loops. There's a time limits, and you know there's just a lot to it. People can struggle to just get through one loop, and for the people who do five, they're going for three days straight, no sleep, and barely getting enough calories. Well, yeah, and I, I don't want to downplay a hundred miles, but wh- why is this race so hard or so interesting? I mean, there are a ton of other hundred mile races out there. What makes this one particularly difficult? Well, it's difficult because barely anyone finishes. Only one guy finishes the year. His name's Jared oh, Campbell. Wow. He He's done this three times now, and he's completed. He's the only guy who's ever done that. Fourteen individuals have done it. No women have been able to do it at this point. And, uh, you know, the thing that kind of struck me the most is just how they try to keep you off kilter when you're at this race and competing in it. So you have to stay at a campground. You're in a tent. You don't know what time the race is going to start. It's up to the race director. But what I saw a lot with a lot of the people I talked to this weekend who did this, whether it was one loop or tried to do five, is that the descriptions, they're just nuts. Um, One example is uh, Jenilyn Eaton. She did it for the first time. And she did well. She did two and a half loops. That's the most of a woman this year. So well is finishing halfway through the race. Right. And that was like her maximum limit. And so this year there were 13 books out on the course. And you have to go out and rip a page to correspond with your bib number. Here's Jenilyn just talking about how kind of frustrating that was for her as a newbie on this course. I show up and toe the line to find out that Barkley is really like doing a crossword puzzle in Braille, and only the vets have the key card of the alphabet. I mean, there's a handful of books that the only directions are, you know, you go partway up a ridge and the book's in a dead tree. Well, 
in that area, there's four ridges coming off the same hillside, and there's like 100 dead trees. That's insane. I think uh, I would probably still be out there looking for the first book right now if I were to compete. I'm going to stick with races that have real course maps. Yeah, some people took 30, about 32 hours to do one loop of this race. So it's it's nuts. It was crazy to be there. And if you want to learn more about the Barkley Marathon, you can go to our website, runnersworld.com slash audio. You'll see a link to you know the coverage we had this weekend. But also, we have a link to our great Runner's World Select called Notorious. Gives you an inside perspective on what it's like to actually run the race. It's a highly recommended read. Well, thanks for coming down, Kit. Keep an eye out on you know these crazy stories, whether they have elk involved or anything. We'll have you down anytime. Thanks, Brian. That's why they pay me the big bucks. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's enough reason to end this week's kick. Now you can take this information and be the most interesting person on your next group run. It's what I've learned. The road can be rough. The tides can turn. But if you work to know yourself, don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. That's it for this week's Runner's World Show. You'll find more material from this episode, including photos, videos, and the full interview with Ryan and Sarah Hall at runnersworld.com slash audio. This show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson with help from Brian Dalek, Christine Fennessy, and Rachel Swaby. The music you're hearing now and that you heard at the top of the show was written and performed by Thunderhoof. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next week when we'll talk with Roberta Gibb, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon back in 1966. Believe it or not, even then it was against the rules for women to run the world's oldest marathon. Roberta actually had to hide in the bushes at the start. I had a blue hooded sweatshirt pulled up over my hair, but within just a few minutes of me jumping out of the bushes in the middle of the pack, they said, I could hear them telling me, is that a girl? Is that a girl? I also hope you'll check out our second new podcast, Human Race. Each episode will tell a single story with great reporting and immersive detail. You can subscribe to both The Runner's World Show and Human Race wherever podcasts are found. And lastly, many of us on The Runner's World staff will be heading up to Boston very soon for Marathon Weekend. It's one of our favorite times of the year. And starting on Friday, April 15th, we're going to set up a mobile recording studio at the Runner's World booth in the Expo. And we want to make you part of a future episode of the Runner's World show. Specifically, we want to know, what is your BQ story? What's the most embarrassing running moment you've ever experienced? What's the best piece of running advice you've ever gotten? Those and lots of other questions. So come on by. We hope to see you there. So I